So as I was doing, you know, preparing this series of love, um, one movie just kept coming into my mind. And it wasn't a movie that I particularly liked either when I first saw it. And that movie is Interstellar by Christopher Nolan. Didn't like it. I thought it was just long and boring and just, eh, right? Um, but the reason why this movie that I initially didn't like kept coming into my mind was that movie, there's a line in that movie that, defined, that is very similar to what I'm trying to teach. And that line is from a scientist played by Anne Hathaway. And this is what she says. She says, love is not something that we invented. It is observable and powerful. Love, perhaps, is an evidence of a higher dimension. And, and we, love is an evidence of a higher dimension we cannot perceive. Love is the only thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends the dimensions of time and space. What she's saying here is, love is the only evidence in our lives that transcends the space-time continuum. Love is an evidence of a higher reality that we cannot perceive, and I think that's true. The universe was designed by the love of God. The love of God flows through every corner of this universe. The love of God, whether you are a believer or unbeliever, courses through the world, courses through yourselves. The love of God is the foundation of existence. The love of God that we talk about today and for the last three weeks, it's not the love that you and I are familiar with. The love that you and I are familiar with, like I said in my prayers in a couple of weeks ago, we're familiar perhaps with um, Eros, which is romantic love. I'm, I'm a sucker for Hallmark romantic movie as an next guy so we kind of recognize, you know, the Korean drama, Hallmark movie, romantic kind of love, which makes me feel really good, by the way. Man, God bless those movies, right? We are perhaps familiar with like, you know, um, Philip's brotherly love, friendship love, right? Some of, some of you are my friends, and I love you, right? Um, and, so, and we're really familiar with storge, which is love, natural affection towards your children or your dog, right? So we're familiar with this, this type of love, friendship, romantic love, you know, familial, familial love. But like Hill eloquently prayed, we are very, on a, we don't know what agape is. The love, the love of God that flows through the universe is agape. Self-giving, self-sacrificing love towards an undeserving person. That's the love of God that courses through existence. We may think it's heroic, and we may, you know, we, may, we, can, we think we can kind of grasp the meaning of it. But living this out, living this agape out, it is an impossibility. In our reason, we think we could. But in the reality of our hearts and emotions, we cannot. The nature of sin Right? What sin is, God's love, God's love, God's agape love flows through the universe. Being sinful means living, trying to go against this flow of love that flows through the universe. Rather than being influenced by the current of this love, being sinful is we want to go against this love that defines existence. And because we try to go against this love, that, that is permeating all through the universe. Because we're trying to go against this reality, lack of love hurts us. The world is in pain. History of the world is in pain because precisely because of lack of agape in people's hearts. Every monstrosity that people do against one another, 
whether it is in your home when you like go get you know when you just duke it out with your spouse, or whether it is in the school where kids are incredibly mean to one another, whether it is in Washington D.C. with two political parties going against one another, the world is in was is in shambles because people cannot practice this love that is permeating through the universe. God is agape. And if we are his people, we too become people of agape. The question is, how do you become a person of agape? The only way that you can be a person of agape, this self-sacrificing love for the unworthy, continuously, is you need to be influenced by the power of God consistently. God is a source of agape. You need to tap into this source daily to practice, to live out agape in your life. That's the only way. This is how the flow of love works. The flow of love works is you get up and you worship God and you marvel at his sovereignty and greatness. You study the scriptures and you pray and you just get marveled and you worship the greatness of God. And then you are just, you look at and you marvel at the love of Jesus Christ that he has for you. And when you are just so influenced and just, you know, just, and just filled with this understanding, your heart naturally gets filled up so that you can start emanating this agape to the people around you. I'll give you a couple of examples. So last week was a very busy week for me, right? And I just crazy busy. And as I was like thinking, like 2.30 in the morning after work, as I was just thinking, pondering about my life, I realized that I'm very blessed. I'm blessed because every moment of my life, besides the you know, moments that I sleep and one hour that I work out and pray, I mean, like, besides a few hours of, of day, most of my life, it's, I, I expend energy. I expend energy to my clients. I expend my energy to my partners. I expend my energy to my family. I expend my energy to you. Like, most of my life, I think, and maybe with a lot of you too, it's just a constant state of expenditure, energy going out of me. And maybe some of you, especially working moms, that's how you live. Constant energy going out of you. But I think the reason why I'm not burning out and the reason why I can still have maintained this joy in this constant expending life is because I start my morning like I just said. I sit in my rocking chair. I open up my Bible and I just wander and marvel at the greatness of God and the love that he has for me. Every morning I can say I am blown away by who he is. And this, as the psalmists say, restores my soul. And as my soul is restored, it gives me the reservoir to expend myself to for others. That's the flow of love. You look at God, you are filled by him. Just, you're just amazed by him. Amazing love, how could it be that you, my king, would die for me? You are just, just captivated by this. And when you are, forgiveness and love and kindness flows out of you. I make mistakes during the day. Yesterday, I was filled with love in the morning. But I was, as I was walking with my family, my wife started to nag me about you know, certain things. And I got ticked off, right? So it's not, it's not this continuous, I'm not, I'm not a saint all day. I fall, but I catch myself and I repent, right? That's how it's supposed to work. You marvel at God and he flows you. He overflows you with his love and understanding so you can, you can show that to the other people in your life. Second example is, you know, I, get, I got my hair cut yesterday and place, the place that I get my hair cut, the beautician, the hair salon that I go to is perhaps is one of my favorite places to go in the world. 
And it's because that place, I know the, like the, the owner of the, of, of the salon cuts my hair. And, and the reason I love that place is because I feel the love of God emanating from that salon. That owner is a God-fearing woman. And when you enter that salon, you could feel the like, resonating love of God in that place. She goes to early morning prayer meeting every day. I think she gets her fill, and that, that fill just and that fill just and the filling of the love of God just permeates the entire place. Brothers and sisters, that's how a Christian is supposed to live. That's how flow love flows. You look at God, you marvel at it, and His marvelous love flows out of you. That's the cycle. What is rebellion? Rebellion and sin is that you don't acknowledge God. You don't look up and you don't marvel at Him. You don't drink in the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you don't marvel when you don't let his love flow in, you cut the source of love out of your life. When you cut the source of love out of your life, what happens? You have a God-shaped hole in your heart. And you try to fill this void with anything and everything. So when you have this void, rather than love flowing out of you, you want love to flow in you. When you cut God out of your life, when you cut the source of love out of your life, you have a void, and you want to fill this void with everything and everyone. Therefore, you want everything to come in you. It becomes all about you. Even though in our minds, we think that we want, we, we're people of capable of sacrificial love, when you cut God out of your, out of your life, you are too busy making it all about you, all about how people respect you, all about how people recognize you, all about how people are kind to you, all about how people are obedient to you, all about how, all about how people are agree, agreeable to you. These things become the motive operandi of your heart. Therefore, you're too busy judging and unforgiving. You're too busy condemning others to truly love them. When you cut the source of love out of your life, when you don't marvel at who God is, this is what happens to all of us. Look, all of us, you know, this is like psychology 101, right? Psychology 101 says, kids who are not loved when they're, when they're loved by their parents when they're little. Kids who are not loved by their parents when they're little you know, psychologists will say these kids will grow up to be people with like serious psychological damage that will not that that will prevent them from loving other people. Psychology 101 says if a kid is not loved by the parents when they're little, then they become damaged individuals, incapable of love. Right, and that is why I think a lot of young parents these days, right, they go overboard trying to give their kid the best childhood possible. So if I give young Timmy the best birthdays ever, right? If I just pay attention to young Timmy with his math, right? If I just, just shower Timmy with my love, then Timmy will grow up to be a healthy individual. There's a certain truth to this. If you're not loved, you're incapable of showing love. That's true. But what parents don't understand is no matter how much love that you pour out on little Timmy, unless little Timmy marvels and knows the great love of God, little Timmy will just be messed up as y'all. Because what little Timmy needs, it's not the parents' love, which is important, but what little Timmy ultimately needs, it's like what all of us need, is to marvel and wonder at the great love that God has for us. How do I know? You know what baffles psychologists these days? You know who goes to see psychologists these days? They are upper middle class kids who had really good parents. Upper middle class kids whose parents provided everything, 
who are there for their math homework and their baseball league, these kids are going to psychologists because they're messed up. What people need is the understanding of the greatness of the love of God. That's the only thing that will make us healthy. What does a love star people, what does a, what does a person, you know, who, who cuts the love of God out of their lives look like? A few people that come into my mind as I was preparing the sermon. One of the examples, I suppose, of people who don't have the source of love and who tries to fill the void in their hearts. One person that I can think of is those Instagram models. Instagram models... Right? I don't, I'm not on Instagram, but it, it, like, you, know, you see posts from time to time. Instagram models who basically take their clothes off. Very scantily dressed people. And who want people to pay attention to them. Love me, pay attention to me, respect me. That's what they're crying out for, is it not? Another person that comes into my mind when I think of yearning love is the young man, or even a middle-aged man, sitting alone in his room, looking at images of degradation and violence that is committed against another human being. And they're consuming that human being like a drug. That is, you're just consuming, consuming, consuming. You're not letting any love out. We're busy consuming. That is what fallen love looks like. Another example of fallen love, the, the presidential debate a couple of days ago, where it was, they went after, I'm not going to say who, went after a son of an opponent, making the son's problem sort like one of the ammos for his national debate. You have no problem hurting people for political capital. That is evidence of, the, of, of people do not, not knowing the love of God and try to make it all about themselves. The verses that we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about what love is not. Last week, Paul defined love as, Paul defined agape love as patience and kindness. God's patient and kind love is perfectly realized in the cross of Jesus Christ. God's patience in that rather than treating us as our sins deserve, God relents his judgment on us. That's his patience on the cross. The kindness of the cross is rather than punishing our sins, rather than us being the recipient of the punishment, he actively sent his own son who became our sin. And, who, and, and he became our sin, and God destroyed him in order, for that, in order so that God will not destroy us. That's the kindness of God. The patience of God, the kindness God perfectly demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how Paul defines what love is. Today, Paul defines what love is by defining what love is not. And these qualities that we're going to talk about today are the qualities of people who do not know God, therefore who do not know true love. What do people who do not know true love look like? That's what we're going to study today. The, the first quality that Paul mentions in verse, verse 4, love does not envy or boast. Paul is saying people who are loveless, people who are strangers to the love of God, one of the first things that they do is they envy or they boast. What is envy? Envy is a boiling emotion, the Greek says. A boiling emotion when you see someone who has what you have. Who, who, I'm sorry, boiling emotion when you see someone who has what you want. There are certain things that we think we need to be special, right? Love is all about me, and there are some things that we think we need to feel special about ourselves. And when someone has that very thing that we think we need to be special and to be loved, we hate that person. 
We hate that person from, for having it, and we hate that person for making us feel this way. We hate that person because what they have reminds us of what a failure we are. We envy. When we envy, all oh, we hate. If I think being good-looking is the most important thing in life, and that's the thing that's going to put me over the edge of a being, like, in order for me to be loved, I will hate people who are better looking than me. Because that person's good looks remind us of how, how, un, how un, unbeautiful, how ugly I am. Envy. Don't know the love of God, we will be envious people. The first murder happened because of envy. Cain was envious of his little brother. The first murder was motivated by envy. Most murders right now, happening even today, is motivated by envy. Someone has what I want, therefore I'm going to go get it. That's envy. That's the number one cause of homicide. Number one cause of world, like wars throughout the history of men. Envy. The other country, the other people have what I want, therefore I'm going to take it. Envy. The Bible is full of envy, like destructive power of envy. Joseph's brothers sold Joseph off to slave because they were envious of, of all the attention that Joseph was getting from Jacob. Saul wanted to kill David because Saul was envious of David. The Pharisees crucified Jesus Christ because they were envious of who Jesus was. The Jews caused a riot against Paul because they were envious of Paul. Envy. Are you envious? When you look at Instagrams or Facebook or whatever thing that you look at, when, when other people seem to have a better life than you, do you feel horrible about yourself? Do you hate the person who possesses it? Envy. Envy was the, one of the dividing forces of the Corinthian church. One of the main dividing forces of the Corinthian church was people with lesser spiritual gifts and lower societal positions. They were envious of people with better gifts, more prominence in society. Therefore, they were judging them. Therefore, they, wanted, they, they didn't want to participate in the life of the body because they were envious of the gifted and talented and the rich. Does envy exist in our church? I have no idea. People don't tell me. But are there brothers or sisters in the body that you secretly hate because they have what you think you need? What's Paul's remedy for envy? Paul tells the Corinthians, get a grip. You people, who, people who think they have not, they're not that special because of low spiritual gifts, Paul is saying, Remember who has placed you in the body. It is God's sovereignty, God's careful choice that made you part of his body. The only way to be, escape from envy is to drink in the sovereignty of God. Not being aware of the sovereignty of God makes you an envious person. What's the next quality? Paul says, love does not envy and love does not boast. It is not arrogant. Boasting and arrogance are related. The word, the, the word Paul used to, for arrogance here, it means to be puffed up. Basically, arrogance here means having a really high understanding, having an overestimated value of who you think you are. You have this puffed up belief of your self-importance. That's arrogance that Paul talks about here. If you don't know the love of God, you're going to be puffed up. You're going to think very highly of yourself. That's arrogance. And boasting is using your lips to express how great you are. That's arrogance. That's boasting. When you 
don't know the love of God, we have an inflated understanding of ourselves, and we use our words to communicate our inflated understanding of ourselves. We boast. When we boast, we boast to tell people how great we are, and we also boast to make people envious of us. This is not what we do. When we boast, we not only tell how great we are, but we want other people to feel a little bit bad about themselves. Because when people feel bad about themselves, I feel pretty good about myself. That's the secret of boasting. Look, yesterday, a lot of things happened when I got my haircut yesterday, right? So I was like getting a haircut, right? Like I was chit-chatting with my salon owner, right? And we talked about Caleb and his college and whatnot, right? And like the hairdresser next to me, uh, she said, oh, my, my daughter, you know, goes to college, da 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 right? You know, and there's a part of me, I'm going to confess it, there's a part of me that wants to say, my son goes to UVA. Because I knew what college her child go to, goes to. I'm not going to say which one, because I don't want to offend people listening to this. But, no, it wasn't that Ricky. How, you're so rude. <laughs> so, so like, but I wanted to say, my son goes to UVA. And you know why I wanted to say it? Not only to brag how important, because it's not really about my son that I want to brag. It's about me, about his, about his dad. I want to brag about me. And there's a see, if, I, if I'm honest, I little wanted to, I didn't want, and, there, and I kind of wanted her to feel a little bit bad about herself because, you know, she's in the, within the, in the presence of a UVA parent. I caught myself. So I, I shut my mouth. I didn't say anything. I'm so proud of myself for that. I could detect the arrogance, the boasting, wanted to jockey my position, elevate myself above her. That's pride and arrogance. If I have it, I think, you know, not that I'm a special guy, but hopefully you don't have what I have, but I won't be surprised if you have what I have. Arrogance and boasting. Isn't social media fueled by arrogance and boasting and envy? That's the very fuel that drives social media, Instagram, Facebook, right? Look at my avocado salad or avocado toast. Right? Look at the wonderful places I went to went on vacation. Right? Not only that, because when you post those things, isn't there a part of you that wants people to feel good for you as well as feel bad about themselves for not living the life that you, you are living right now? No? Am I just that cynical? Or people who go on, I call them Facebook preachers, who just post their opinions about things on Facebook, so adamant about it, thinking that their opinion on this matter is the gospel truth. Right? That's, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't post anything on Facebook because I don't, I don't, I don't think you care what I, have, what I have to think about things. There are people that do. They think what I think, what I believe is the truth, and if you disagree with me, man, you are not just sinning, you are dead wrong. Arrogance and pride and boasting. That's what happens when you cut the source of love out of your life. You have an overinflated view of who you are. You have an overinflated view of your opinions. Paul's remedy, and, and this was a problem in the Corinthian church, because people with better spiritual, more public spiritual gifts, who occupy a more prominent position in society, they started to think. We don't need the scrubs. We don't need the lower people. This church can go on only with us. They had an essence of arrogance about them, saying we don't need the less talented. Paul is telling them, get a grip. What do you have that you did not receive from God? And if you received everything from God, why do you boast, Paul says? 
Get a grip. Have an objective understanding of who you are. What you have was given by God. Boasting doesn't make any sense because you earn nothing to, 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 to boast about the, because you, you, you did nothing to have that makes you so think you're, you're so special. Cutting the source of love out of your life. You become a proud, boastful individual. Paul, verse 5 says, love is not rude. One of the evidence of cutting the source of love out of your life is you become rude. You, rude here means you disrespect people. You disrespect their humanity. That's what it is. When we're constantly late for things, we're not respecting the time of the other person. The, the un- underlying seed of rudeness is you, we think that we get to treat other people the way we kind of want to be treated. We, 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 we discount their dignity and their humanity. We don't consider the valuableness of their time. We have no regard for the dignity of the other person. That's rudeness. When you cut the source of love out of your life, you disrespect, disregard the dignity of the other person. There's a Korean celebrity who is known for having a strong marriage, right? And if you know who I'm talking about, that makes you, you know, fresh off the boat, right? So, right, so this person, the way he treats his wife, he treats her with Dignity and respect. How do you know? It's the, way, it's the way he talks to her. In Korean, there's a formal language and there's like an informal way of speaking, right? So if your formal, formal language is yo, 안녕하세요, right? 밥 먹었어요? Or informal is, yeah, 밥 먹었냐? Right, you know what I mean? So there's a formal way to speak and an informal way to speak. This dude, he was married for like 30 years. He always addresses his wife with a formal language. There's a respect that he shows his wife. Married folks, that's hard, you know? Because when we marry, after we married, that line, that line of respecting people, it gets crossed. It, we throw it out. And we just encroached on the dignity of other people, especially our spouses. I knew that. When I talk to my kids, I'm aware that I could hurt them. So there's a, there's a, there's a, I try to not cross a line when I talk to them. But that line becomes blurry when I deal with my wife. There's a temptation to be rude, disrespectful, discount people. Strangely, the person that you love the most. Love is not rude. If you treat people harshly, there is no love in you. One of the couples that I love the most, when they were dating, Right? They didn't have, um, they didn't have, um, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like certain type of relations they did not engage in, right? And the reason why they did not engage in this type of behavior is because they wanted to respect each other. They didn't want to consume each other. They wanted to respect each other. That's true love. Love advocated by society is when you are, when, you, when you're supposed to love each other, you're supposed to consume each other as quickly as you can. You're supposed to burn for each other. But what I recognize is people who engage, people who cross that line early, they really don't have respect for each other when they get married. 
a person, people who are willing to cross that line and disrespect initially, people who think they could treat the other however they want it initially, when they get married, there's a lot of problems in their relationship because of the level of disrespect. If there is no respect for the people that you love, if you are constantly crossing lines, especially to your spouse, There is no love of God in you. Love is not rude. Paul says, love does not insist on its own ways. Insists on its own ways is everything is about you, how how things are beneficial to you. That's, 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 ESV says, seeking, self-seeking. It says, insist on its own way. I need to get my own way. It's about me, how well I'm treated. I will invest myself only as much as it benefits me. Self-seeking. What's the number one reason for divorce? I'm not happy anymore. I'm not satisfied with you anymore. What's the number one reason why people leave the church? The church is not providing for my needs anymore. I will commit to this place, I will commit to this people so long as I get something. But the moment that I lose the thing that I want, I'm I'm piecing out. Society right now is just made up of these people, right? Like young people switch jobs like here, there, everywhere. I, I, I invest in this job so long as I get my capital worth, and then I go to somewhere else. That's self-seeking. The missionary Parish Reedhead says, one of the greatest problems of the church is the church is filled with self-seeking people. Paris Reedhead says, there are four types of people, there are four types of unconverted people in the church. And one of, the, one of the unconverted people in the church is people who come to church solely because of self-interest. I come because my friend goes here. I come here because my family goes here. I come here because we have a good daycare here. I come because I, we have, they have a good youth group here. I come because out of my own self-interest. But the moment it gets uncomfortable, inconvenient, Paris Reader says, they either cause trouble, drama, or they leave. The greatest, one of the greatest problems in the, church, in the Korean church specifically are people who come to church for self-interested reasons alone. That's the problem with the Corinthian church. That's one of the reasons the Corinthian church was divided. Was, it was filled with self-interested people. If you're all about you, that you don't know the love of God, Because the love of God is always about the other, especially the unworthy. The love of God flows out. Self-seeking flows in. Being self-seeking is evidence that we have no idea about the love of God. Love is not irritable or resentful. The ESV says love... um, Love is not easily angered. The way, you, the, the way you know that you don't know the love of God, one of the key ways to know is, are you easily angered? When someone annoys you, when someone offends you, when someone inconveniences you, if someone just has a wrong way about them, do you, do you get angry at them? The first quality of love, first quality of agape love is patience. Long-suffering. Especially, in, and not retaliating when the person wrongs you. Patience is, you have the ability to retaliate, you have the right to retaliate, but you don't. That's patience. Demonstrated by Jesus Christ on the cross, 1 Peter chapter 2. When Christ was being crucified, they hurled insults at him as he was dying. But it says, rather than retaliating, Peter says, 
Jesus entrusted himself to God the Father who judges all things. The moment he was dying, the moment when the wrath of God was being poured upon him, these people made fun of Christ. And Christ had the ability to send legions of angels to destroy every single one of them, but he did not. He did not retaliate. The epitome of the the love of God is patience. The reason why we're still standing, the reason, despite all our sins, the reason why God is not striking us down as, as our sins deserve right now is because He is patient with us. He wants us to be saved. Retaliating, getting easily angered, is the opposite of the patience of Jesus Christ. Someone ticks you off and you have no problem, like natural reflex. When someone ticks you up, you just dig the worst things about them and you just throw at them. If you're easily angered, it is not just a character flaw, but it reveals the love of God is still a strange concept to you. Are you easily angered? In your mind, You say, the other person deserves my anger. The other person deserves my wrath because that person caused me harm. Therefore, I'm justified in my anger. But remember, agape is showing love to the unworthy, to the undeserving. While we were sinners, Christ died. The whole point of patience is not retaliating against the person whom you think you have the right to retaliate. If you're retaliating oh so easily, I don't think you know the love of God. Love, he says, does, love is not, what is it, love it's not irritable or resentful. I'm doing the EV, ESV version. Verse 4, 5, Paul says, Love keeps no records of wrong. One of the qualities of love is that you keep no record of wrong. When people sin against you, even though this person has a history of sinning against you, you don't hold that against them you remain hopeful and forgiving. I'm modifying what Alistair Beck said, but you know, the sermon I listened to was like from 20 years ago, so I'm modernizing it. All of us, like I said, have a YouTube clip in our minds. Clips of how the other person wronged me. Especially when you're married. You have, you have a library of how other person disappointed you. You have a library of the mean things, and, and, and like mean things that they said to you. You have a library selection of how they were coarse to you, unkind to you. And when you look at that person, you play clips. You play clips of how they wronged you, how they disappointed you. And when you look at the person, you, you look at the person, you're, you're just looking at someone that has, has to have a history of wrong, wronging you. Love keeps no record of wrong. If you have, if you hold grudges the last years, if you have unforgiveness, you keep record of wrong because we're unforgiving. That's what it is. Unforgiveness is keeping records of wrong. That's what unforgiveness is. If you're constantly playing how people wronged you and not forgiving them, then I'm afraid that you don't know the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has offered to you. Jesus gives an example of the parable of the ungrateful servant. In this parable, he says there was a king and he had a servant and this servant owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000. Right? And the king wanted all this property seized, all his relatives in jail, because he owed the king 10,000 talents. But the, but the servant begged him, says, Please, king, I know you're merciful, I know you're kind, I cannot pay this off, but please forgive me. So the king forgave 
this guy's debt, 10,000 talents. After he forgives the king, after the king forgives him, the servant like, runs into another fellow servant who owes this servant 100 denarii. To put it in context, I googled it. Google's so awesome, right? One talent equals, what did I say? One talent equals 600 denaries, right? So one talent equals 600 denaries. He owed the king 10,000 denaries, 10,000 talents, which means if one talent equals 600 denaries, he owed the king six million denaries. Right? That's the math, right? One talent equals 600 denaries. He owed the king 10,000 talents. Therefore, really, he owed the king six million denaries. The king forgave him for the six million. But when he ran into a person who owed him 100 denaries, he, he oh, you got you bum, you owe me 10, you owe me 100 denaries. So he, the servant took the fellow servant to court to sue him. When the king heard about what the servant did, he was furious. Why? The king says, I forgive you for six million denaries and you can't forgive the other guy for his hundred denaries? Put that dude in jail. When you're unforgiving, you're being exactly like the servant when you cannot forgive, hold grudges against someone who has wronged you, when you hold on to the bitterness for a long time, it is because you have no idea of what God did to forgive you. There is no question. People hurt us. It's true. People hurt us. I have the battle scars to prove how people hurt us. But this parable, Jesus is saying, no matter what other person that did done to you, it's nothing compared to what you did to God and His creation and His people. How you transgressed Him, how you wronged Him, it's, no, it's nothing. What the other person did is nothing compared to how you, how you wronged God. And yet... God forgave you by sending us His Son for you. If you have truly understand what it took God to forgive you, how can you not forgive people who have wronged you? What do they do to you? Do they say mean things to you? Were they judgmental and critical of you? Do they let you down for some reason, some ways? There's no doubt the pain is real. But the pain that that person caused you pales in comparison to the damage and the pain that you've caused God the Father. Do you know that? People, this is the root of our faith. The root of our faith is we owe God a debt because of, of such horrendous things that we do and think and transgress, because of the horrendous depravity that we constantly commit, even though we are deserving of death, Christ forgave us. Christian religion primarily is about people who have been forgiven by God. If you do not know the forgiveness that God offered you, your religion is just a shell. It's not real. When God reveals your sins to you, and when you know that you've been forgiven by Him, it will motivate you to forgive other people. Not only that, when you realize this love, all the other qualities of agape flows through you. And when it flows through you, you can practice agape to others. But you need to know what the love of God is. Do you know the love of God? If you're living a life of envy, pride, arrogance, self-seeking, unforgiveness, if this is how 
if this is how you characterize your relationships, I'm afraid you do not know the love of God in Jesus Christ. I'm afraid perhaps your religion is just a shell and it has no power to it. If that is you, he's not telling you to condemn you. No, he's telling you so, because he's patient with you so that you will repent and cry out to him to forgive, for, for forgiveness. Let us pray for these things. Father, we just sang about your amazing love. And we have heard about your love all throughout our Christian life. Perhaps because we're so, we were so inundated by such teachings. We think we know what it means. But the way we live our lives, Lord, proves that we don't know what your love is. Maybe there is division here in our church. Maybe there is division in our families. Maybe there is unforgiveness, rudeness, unkindness, pride, self-seeking nature in our relationships. The only way that we will overcome these destructive characteristic traits is for you to flow your love in us. It's for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be evidently be clear to us. It is our prayer that you reveal our sins, the horrendous nature of our sins to us, Lord. Help us to see why Christ had to die for us. Help us to see, Lord, the great cost, the great sacrifice that Christ did for loving such a person like ourselves. Maybe we don't have an understanding of our sins because maybe we have never thought of ourselves as sinful. Maybe we have never understood the monster that is living inside us. We pray for revelation of the reasons why you need to die for us. And as we become aware of those reasons, and may as we become aware of the great sacrificing, crusading work of Jesus Christ, May that understanding transform our relationships. May our lives not be about receiving things, but let our lives be about sharing your love and forgiveness to the people around us. That is the great transforming work of the Holy Spirit. We pray for that work in our lives. We pray that you will look after my brothers and sisters who are in need, whether if we are looking for work, Father, we pray that you bless them with work. If there are health concerns, we pray for healing. If there is spiritual depression, we pray for spiritual liberation. If there is anxiety, cure that anxiety by reminding them of your sovereignty. Whatever our fallenness are, Lord, we pray that you heal us. All these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.